This is Linda Belcher, and you're listening to Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. The Beatles were like, that's what I grew up with. I mean, literally, as a child, I do remember like being at friends' houses and dancing and doing the twist with my mom with like you know twist and shout and can't buy me love and it was a really happy part of my childhood and the Beatles like had this innocence that I still had in my childhood there was the songs there was the movies and then there was the cartoon it's hard to even separate things out today's guest is Kathy Valentine an American singer songwriter and musician She made music history as a member of the Go-Go's. Over the years, she has maintained a career in music through songwriting, recording, performing, and touring, as well as academic and other creative pursuits. At 21, Kathy was living in Los Angeles when she met a guitarist from a fledgling band called the Go-Go's, and the band needed a bassist. The Go-Go's became the first multi-platinum selling all-female band to play instruments themselves, write their own songs, and have a number one album. Their debut, Beauty and the Beat, spent six weeks at the top of the Billboard 200 and featured the hit songs We Got the Beat and Our Lips Are Sealed. The record's success brought the pressures of a relentless workload and schedule, culminating in a wild, hazy, substance-fueled tour that took the band from the club circuit to arenas where fans, promoters, and crew were more than ready to keep the party going. For Valentine, the band's success was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. But it's only part of her story. Her new book, All I Ever Wanted, a rock and roll memoir, traces the path that took her from her childhood in Texas, where she all but raised herself, to the height of rock and roll stardom, devastation after the collapse of the band that had come to define her, and the quest to regain her sense of self after its end. In her book, Valentine speaks candidly about the lasting effects of parental betrayal, abortion, rape, and her struggles with drugs and alcohol, and the music that saved her every step of the way. Her book is filled with vivid portraits of 1980s rock and roll, but most importantly, all I ever wanted is a deeply personal reflection on a life spent in music. Welcome, Kathy Valentine. Thank you for being here with us today, Kathy. Um, I have just read your fantastic memoir, and it it strikes me that it is so different from so many other kinds of autobiographical tell-alls that are available in the marketplace, because, quite frankly, it's real. Well, 
it had to be, you know, I'm, I had a couple of motivations. One, one, I wanted to, I want to be a writer. I want to be seen and accepted as a writer. And I felt like, um, starting out, opening the door to that with this the, a story that only I could tell, you know, would be the way rather than like, oh, here's here's this great literary novel from the girl that played bass on We Got the Beat in 1982. I just didn't think that was a good foundation, you know. So I I thought, well, I, I'm, I'll start with a memoir to show that I can write and that I can elicit respond you know you know what it is you you want to you want I wanted my reader to connect with me and I didn't think that I was a big enough celebrity to just have people want to just write by my book because they're curious about me I'm, I'm very practical that way so I felt like it had to be a memoir to open the door to me being a writer and I felt like it had to be really well written and I had to be really honest and, and relate on a level as a person and as a human being rather than thinking for one second that my, my uh, position as a, a known person would be enough. It just, it's just not, you know, what had to be enough was good writing and a good compelling story. So I felt well, like with those two things, I, I could do it. You know what I mean? Well, it certainly works uh, in terms of a good narrative voice uh, that keeps the readers in- engaged, which is really, after all, the whole point of it. And it clearly seems like you enjoyed the writing process. I just loved writing it. I have to say, it's like I had motivations for writing the book, you know, and like I just explained. And I felt like I had a, a, a good story and a compelling story. And I felt like you know, as I wrote in my book, that it's important for women that make music their lives to get our stories out there. But what I didn't expect was how much I would enjoy it and how much I would enjoy putting all those fragments of memories together to make a big picture that, I I don't know, it just was a super cool um, endeavor, as well as, of course, as you can imagine, very emotional. It's also important, of course, that your book is told from a female point of view, right? We're talking about uh, a rock and roll book marketplace that is oversaturated with volumes told from a masculine point of view. Did you consider that issue when you were working on your book? What fascinates me is how rare it is that a woman chooses music for her entire livelihood and how you have to get to a certain level of success to even be able to do that. Whereas, so there's a lot of academia about it because it's almost like a gender studies thing. Like a man cannot be that successful and yet still be a musician for his whole life. Right. Whereas a woman has to get to a certain level to make it her whole life. You know, she, she has to, she has to be able to succeed or else they just, they just go into obscurity. And all these bands in the sixties that were women, they're obscure because they didn't, they weren't successful because you, especially back then, you know, nobody had nannies in 1963, you know, 64. So they had to choose, they had to choose a life. So I guess I'm just fascinated by these choices that women made and to, to make music their life and what got in the way and why they couldn't make it their life, why it was just a period of their life where somebody like me or Chrissy Hind or the Wilson sisters or Joan Jett. So how did you get your start as a, both a musician and a recording artist? 
Well, I started it with, with my friend Carla and it's funny you said, cause everything we recorded, I felt just was so low budge and just didn't sound meaty or, or crunchy or, or just, you know, our, my favorite band during that time was Nick Lowe, rock pile, uh, Tom Petty. Like we were very much about, kind of that but also I was a little bit more of the punkier one I really loved the damned and the Ramones and all that so very soon it became like a, a, a two two bands in one like I would write my songs and sing them and Carla would write her songs and sing them and when I quit the band that was part of the reason but we started it um, we'd moved our punk band to LA and we we broke up right away and uh while Carla and I were trying to put a new band together, we were just kind of being these Texans in LA and there was a real community. And we, the Texans really like banded together. I remember meeting Mark Benno and being so like blown away because it was Mark Benno and who didn't have, you know, uh, him and Leon Russell's work. And yet the bond was that he was from Texas and there was this amazing band from um, Dallas called the werewolves that I think, Andrew Luke Holden uh, was either the manager or their producer, and they were like super cool. They're a band that should have happened that never did. And they were from, there was just this Texas bond. So when we finally got our band together, we were so into that Texas identity that we called it the Textones. And yet that was kind of the only thing about our identity that had a co- any kind of a thorough, thorough line because. Otherwise, we our influences were very different. Our approaches, our singing, but it was um, it was a, a a pretty. I mean, for me, it was a the, enough things happened in that band that made me want to stay in LA and made me feel like LA was just covered in magic dust where anything could happen. And I thought I, I thought I'd been in the band for years. I was only writing the book that I realized you know it probably took us nine months to put the band together. We probably didn't t- totally come together till the end of 79. And, you know, by the end of 80, I was in the, in the go-go's We're playing with the go-go's. So what happened then to Carla, Carla Olson, who was your fellow member of the text tones? Yeah. Carla is a, a really good guitar player. You know, she was much better than I was as a guitar player yet together. You know, we definitely, I thought we were really special because, you know, there's two cool Texas chicks leading a band and I, I thought we had everything it takes, but um, it was, it was a, a definitely just kind of a, a developing stage that I think was, was, was really good for me. Let's activate our time machine for a moment and go a bit further back to the 1960s and the Beatles. What is your Fab Four origin story? The Beatles were like, that's what I grew up with. I mean, literally as a child, I mean, I remember there was like, in my child, my mom wasn't real music. There wasn't like a lot of music in our house. You know, we didn't have a stereo. Um, but I do remember like being at friends' houses and dancing and doing the twist with my mom with like, you know, twist and shout and can't buy me love. And, and, uh, this was like, just, it was a really happy part of my childhood. And the Beatles like had this, 
innocence that I still had. And it's one of the interesting things to me when I think about me in relationship with the Beatles. It's like right when my life really started kind of turning to crap, like when my book starts, that was kind of when the Beatles broke up. You know, I think, uh, I think let it be, I was like 11 when that came out and that's when my life really started turning bad. And I sure, I, I, I could have used that soundtrack then because there was so much of it was just kind of leading me along. And yet when I started getting like high and stuff, I could look back to these childhood kind of figures knowing that they were getting high and that kind of bridged it for me. Like, okay, if the Beatles get high, then it's, it's harmless. Cause it was harmless in the seventies, the idea of smoking pot or, you know, doing some mushrooms or stuff. It, there was nothing sinister about that world. How did your own interest in the Beatles develop? In my childhood, there was the songs, there was the movies, and then there was the cartoon. It was my first relationship with music. It was my very first relationship where I knew the words, where I sang along, where I felt happy. You know, it, it just, it was just, it was part of, there's no way I could, it's so indelibly interwoven into my childhood and growing up that I, it's hard to even separate things out of it, if you know what I mean. So for you, it was sort of the natural commerce of being a kid, hearing all of this great music. It wasn't like later on when everybody would like analyze every little word and, you know, trying to figure out what this man, what that man. It was like very um, uh, literal, you know, I want to hold your hand. That's what it meant. You know, it was like, uh, so I, I think lyrically, they they just kind of all all along they just changed the entire game lyrically i mean my first single that i ever bought was paperback writer or hanky panky or i might have bought them both at the same time i remember having you know a little record player i finally had a little record player and that's when my first singles were you know not only top 40 and bubblegum and stuff but were beatles singles when we return, we'll hear more from Kathy Valentine about her early love of the Beatles, her growing love of music, and her early years in Texas. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We're back with Kathy Valentine. Uh, Kathy, one of the, the most interesting aspects of your story, uh, most dramatic, is you growing up in Texas at in Austin, while your mother attended the University of Texas. Tell us more about that life. You know, my mom was pretty social and she was a UT student. So we were always hanging out with, you know, there was no other kids, but my mom would just take me everywhere. I didn't, my book starts when I'm like 11, when everything turned to crap. But before that, my mom took me everywhere and it was a real academic crowd and there was a lot of Beatles. So during this period when you're spending so much time with 
your mother's much older peer group uh, in the academic world, did you develop a favorite Beatles album that you would listen to that you came to enjoy? I didn't. I didn't start buying albums until I got my first stereo, and that. And I. I did not like. I didn't have a brother or a sister. Nobody to turn me on to things. But when I would go to Lubbock and stay with my dad's, my dad wasn't in my life, but my mom, because she worked full time and stuff, she would, in the summertime when I wasn't in school, she would kind of ship me out to Lubbock where I had tons of cousins and they all had all the albums. And that's where I discovered uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver. And um, I think I didn't start buying albums until it got a little bit later on, you know, maybe like age 10, 11. I think the White Album was the first album, Beatles album I bought. What a fantastic place to start with all that complex music and uh, just a rich text. It was, and it was, I mean, it seems weird, like when, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but like when you're thinking back at, at like what you loved when you were a child and as an adult, you think, no way, I couldn't have been hip to that. I couldn't have been into that. And, but if you're a parent, you see that absolutely you can be. I I mean, my daughter from the, from the tiniest age, like had a really strong sense of what she liked and what she responded to. And seeing that as a parent made me be a little bit more respectful and honor what I thought to be. I don't know if I'm, I'm articulating it very well, but I guess as an adult, you think no way, there's no way like a nine-year-old could have loved the white album or a 10-year-old. But having been a parent, I know absolutely there's a way a nine or a 10-year-old. I mean, we music is profoundly effective on, you know, even as little children in a a myriad of ways, you know? So yeah, what I remember about the white album was that number one, it fit exactly what I was like as a kid. And it was like, it was accessible. It was playful and yet it felt mysterious and it was intriguing. So it was kind of like as the, my awareness of the world was growing uh, where you you know you start like thinking about things dying and these big profound things that aren't quite uh, as prevalent in your consciousness when you're like you know more just kind of playing around outside and stuff. So the White Album really mirrored that for me. It was it felt important and it felt ominous and it felt playful and mysterious and intriguing and it kind of captured the world as I saw it and I it made me it made me feel like I was a part of that. Like I liked something that adults liked, even though I, you know, adults liked the earlier stuff. I felt like I was getting it in the same way. This really speaks to a quality that one can pick up from your memoir about um, the nature of growing up in a kind of adult world where you're almost the only kid. There, We didn't, we lived around UT campus, uh, there was just not, there weren't kids. I I mean, it wasn't until like, if I would go to school, I would have some friends, but I was always embarrassed to bring anyone to my house because we didn't live close to the school and we didn't live in a house like other people live. So I I had a very isolated childhood. And that's another reason music was important to me, but also feeling accepted by adults did mean a lot to me. That was where I got kind of my validation. Tell us some more about your mom and the kind of effect she had on you growing up. Um, well, my mom's English. 
So she and she's always been very proud of her her English roots. I don't know why she's stayed in Texas. I mean, for 60 years, 60 something years now, she's been complaining about Texas. But she I even said, let's go back. Let's go live in England. And she doesn't want to. But she's always been proud of being from England. I've always been proud of being half English. And I think the Beatles played into that, too. You know, it was like there was this pride from her end that this phenomena, this like biggest thing in the entire world was came from her home country. And she's still going strong today, right? Yep, she still lives here. And it's funny, like we were just to touch back on what we were talking about before. It's like when you think, I mean, it's just it's part of the story of the Beatles or the stuff. Like, you know what Motown was and you know what Buddy Holly was or Muddy Waters or Carl Perkins. You know what these these influences meant to these bands Yet when you think of a, a female artist, you don't really think of that. And that's another thing, like going back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, that's, a, that's a big part of women's stories that I want to tell. Like what was like, that's what I tried to do in my book. Like this is what music was to me. This is what, this is why it affected me. And it's hard. It's really, my hat's off to anyone that can write about music because it is really hard to write about music or to even articulate what it is like somebody, I did this interview not long ago and somebody's like, well, why tell me this song that you, you know, what's your favorite Bowie song? And you just kind of spout one out. And then they're like, well, why, well, what about it? Do you like, and you're just like, Oh, for God's sake, you know, it's so difficult to, to articulate it. And it's even harder to write about it. So my hat's off to you, especially. In your memoir, you narrate an early trip to England that seemed like it was a real change maker for you as far as your identity went. I had been playing the guitar. I had learned guitar, a little acoustic guitar, and was learning, you know, the basic folky songs that you might learn, Wildwood Flower, This Land is Your Land, Blowing in the Wind. And I was this little rock and roller learning these songs that never really, I never made the jump of connecting the dots from I Like Rock and Roll pardon the pun, I love rock and roll, to I pl- I'm playing a guitar. I just didn't fill in that gap. And we had to, we happened to be in England for Christmas. My mom, she was such a, let's, I'll, I'll say flake or uh, very living in the moment. She would just like work a job, take out her little meager retirement and take us to England for a few months. So as a result, she has no retirement money, but that's another story. Um but we had lots of trips to England. So that was a crucial one, though, because I'm 13. I'm playing the guitar. I love rock and roll. I'm watching Top of the Pops. I look up on the TV, and there's Susie Quattro. I've never seen a woman not only in a band, but fronting, leading a band, playing an instrument. She's not the lead singer. She's not, you know, I, I love Janis Joplin. I love all the 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 or that all of them, like there's millions, you know, there was not that many, but the, the female rock stars, super cool, but I never seen any playing an instrument and that changed everything. That was the gap. That was bridge. The, I play guitar. I love all these bands. Oh, I can be in a band. That was it. Of course, as you point out in your memoir, <clears throat> it was not that simple, was it? Well, it's kind of sad. I thought about this a lot because in England, 
there was a lot more girls, teenage girls starting bands. And I know this because I went back there to play, to uh, play in a band when I was about 17. And in, in Austin, after seeing Susie, I went home to Austin to start bands. And I had to like basically coerce my friends. You're going to play drums. Because there was no teenage girls my age. And yet in England at the same time, there, when I went back a couple of years later, there was I, I met probably in one day, I met like probably a dozen females my age, teenage girls in bands. And it's the visibility. Susie Quattro wasn't a big star in America until Happy Days, you know. That's right. She played the Milwaukee Tough uh, Leather Tuscadero on that show. So it kind of breaks my heart to think in this crucial time of music when bands are reflecting the entire uh i don't even know what the word is the zeitgeist of an entire culture and generation and forming bands and reflecting that the how many you know women are are so not as much in that story as they could have been if there was the visibility and you can't do anything about it i mean now we have youtube now you can go on youtube and just type in girls that play lead guitar and you will watch videos for the next two days of girls sitting in their bedroom shredding on a guitar. But back then there was none. There was, and yet there were, there were, there was Goldie and the gingerbreads. There was the pleasure seekers, the debutantes, the, the, what's that band? They just did the documentary on the ace of cups or whatever. There was all these bands in the sixties. If you just, and yet we didn't know about them. So what inspired you to head out west to take the big leap and go to Los Angeles? Well, I wanted an adventure, you know. I wanted to me when you're when you turn 18, that's when and I hadn't chosen college. I had decided that music was going to be my life. So, I'm a very goal-oriented, methodical st- strategist and I'm like, okay, if you're going to make it in a band, it's not going to happen in Austin. You got to go to New York or LA. And um that was why I went there was to make it in a band. And that's when, when I met the Go-Go's, I mean, it was like, I came here to be, to make it in a band. I figured out the text tones. I didn't think was going to be the band that I was going to make it in within a couple of months. I meet the Go-Go's. I hear, I learn all their songs. I, I play some gigs as a sub and I'm like, I figured out right away. I'm like, this band is the one, this is the one that's going to make it. Looking back, though, you brought a lot to the table. Um, clearly, you made a big difference in the course of that band. They weren't finished or ready-made. Yeah, and I, you know, I had been writing songs, and it was good for the Go-Go's to have another song. They had an amazing uh, collection of tunes that Charlotte and Jane had written. But you know, after the first album, there that was the that was the collection. So it was kind of like, okay, we got to generate stuff. I had uh, another song I brought in was Can't Stop the World, which closed out the first album. So yeah, I felt like, and it was important to me that I be a, a contributing member from, from the beginning. I didn't want to just be a, you know, like dead weight. So what originally drew you to the base? Uh, what was your inspiration? Was it, dare I say, Paul McCartney? You're from your Beatles origins? Well, I get asked that a lot, and it's funny because I never paid attention to the bass. I think a lot of people that are just casual listeners of music, even people that love music, it just I knew that it would be 
sound bad without it, but I didn't really single it out and listen to what bass parts were uh, until I became a bass player. So I think probably, even though I didn't pay that much attention to the bass, I paid more attention to the bass in the Beatles than I did any other music. But then when I started playing the bass, um, I started listening more and started becoming, you know, singling that out. And also as I just began working in the studio more and became more of a, of an artist, you know, you, for me, I started out, I just want to be in a band. I just want to be in a band. I just want to make it in a band. And then it became more about what that involves. And you just, your awareness grows. It's like when you want to be a writer and you start reading with that writer's eye rather than just entertaining yourself. It's intriguing how you came to the bass, um, which wasn't your first rock instrument. What interested me is like, you know, I went from guitar to bass and I've always approached the bass very much. I, as with a guitar sensibility, I use a pick. I think about what makes the song the best. I think about where's, where's their space, stay out of the way of the vocal, but put something interesting where there's room, otherwise stay out of the way. And I started realizing I would never, ever in a zillion years put myself in a league with Paul McCartney as a player. But I will say that there is a sensibility that is very similar because, and I think it comes from being a guitar player first. And now, of course, we can add writer to your dossier as part of your creative identity. I had a 23-city book tour. I was so excited to go out and be Kathy Valentine for the first time in my life. I've, I really I really let being in a band kind of overshadow being me. And a lot of it was because it was safe. And I probably wasn't as confident as I've always pretended I am. And I felt like I had this cushion of a band around me. And for the first time when I wrote the book, I'm like, okay, I'm me now. It's like I never wanted to be a star or a front person, but with a book, you are the, the front person. Well, with your memoir, you have established yourself as a bona fide front person indeed. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next time. Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.